Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We welcome Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jared Dillian. Uh, he's also an editor and publisher of the Daily Dirt Nap and investment strategist at Malden Economics based in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Jared, thanks so much for joining us here. Interesting column you had about mom and pop trading, this Robinhood app. This reminded me of kind of the late 90s, 1999, when we had a lot of individual retail investors get in there really speculating at what turned out in hindsight in March of 2000 to be the peak in the bubble, particularly the dot-com boom. Give us a sense of kind of what's happening now with these mom-and-pop investors and, and all the trading apps that are out there. Yeah, I wouldn't even say it's really mom-and-pop. I mean, these are young people. I mean, these are people in their 20s and early 30s. And I, I think people underestimate the scale of what is happening. I mean, you saw that Robinhood had 3 million accounts opened in the first quarter of a loan. Wow. You're talking about you're talking about just millions of people that have dived into day trading. And the interesting thing about this is that, you know, for the last 10 years there were a lot of retail investors that um, jumped into the market, but they did it the right way. They did it slow, they did it with index funds, they paid low fees, and just over the last 6 months everything has gone out the window. Jared, before we get to why no one should blame the Fed for Robinhood and its uh, its sins and the sins that have emanated from its users, talk to us about what you can actually do on Robinhood Financials app, because it seems like you can do some really sophisticated financial trades. You're not talking about just buying stocks and, and not even just shorting stocks. There's plenty of other things that you can do. And there doesn't appear to be a limit to the amount of leverage you can take. Yeah, I mean, Robinhood uh, is a platform that allows options trading. And, you know, I used to work in the options industry. That's where I started my career. And if you look back at, you know, back then, total options volume in a given day across the four exchanges would be about 2 million contracts. Now it's up to about 12 million contracts. And these people are, you know, very uneducated when it comes to options. Uh, they don't really know anything about option pricing at all, and they're just buying upside calls in stocks just for extreme amounts of leverage, just under the idea that stocks always go up. So um, I think this is not going to end too well. Jared, I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of kind of what's driving this move into this retail trading and the and the you know the Robinhood apps and all of that and. A lot of these young folks coming in into the market. And I've read it might be simply the fact that we're all stuck at home. We're all quarantined. Uh, there's no sports to bet on. There's no casinos to go to. And to satisfy that speculative urge, maybe folks are turning to the stock market, particularly the options market. Does that have value in your opinion? No, that's, that's absolutely what's going on. People are at home and bored. You know, I actually... Um, you know, for five years, I taught at the local university and I checked in with one of my former students and he's, you know, living in his mom's basement, quarantined, and he's trading, you know. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a function of it's a function of boredom. It's a function of getting no action on sports betting. Uh, I think it's also partially a function 
of the stimulus and unemployment money that's been going out because people are speculating with very small amounts of money. You know, I get questions about people with, you know, they have $1,000 to put to work and they're asking about how to trade stocks. And this goes to the kernel of your column because you say that rather than it being sort of liquidity out there thanks to the Fed, the real villains here are the discount brokers who have cut trading commissions to zero. Explain that, Jared. Yeah, I mean, you know, commissions were never a huge portion of the discount brokers' revenue. They were about 20% or less. Uh, And these were competitive forces that drove commissions lower. I mean, it wasn't anything sinister. Uh, It wasn't really a marketing ploy to try to get more people to trade. It was just competitive pressures that drove commissions lower. So that's really, you know, it's, it's just like supply and demand. You know, if you lower the price of something, there's going to be more demand for it. And you've seen trading volumes just absolutely explode since there's no commission. Now, I've always been of the view that commissions and fees are not necessarily a bad thing because they shape investor behavior and they encourage buy and hold strategy. Just briefly, Jared, how much has this to do with Dave Portnoy, who's, of course, Barstool Sports' founder <laughs> and really hyped Robinhood Financial and his day trading? Uh, I think it has quite a bit to do with it, actually. I mean, he has a pretty large following. And I think, you know, I think people take him a bit too literally and a bit too seriously. You know, he's gone after people like Warren Buffett and Jim Simons and stuff like that. And he says he's the greatest day trader in the world. But, you know, he's given confidence to a lot of people that they can do the same thing. Yeah, and it's just not that easy as, uh, of course, anyone who's done it for a living can attest to. Jared Dillian is columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He's editor and publisher of The Daily Dirt Nap. Also investment strategist at Molden Economics. And, of course, he's the author of that book that I'm sure you've all read, Street Freak, Money and Madness at Lehman Brothers, and uh, another novel, All the Evil of This World. Jared Dillian, thank you for joining. Paul, can I... ask you if you have a Robin Hood trading account? I, I do not. I absolutely do not. <laughs> we wouldn't be allowed to. I'm not, I'm not so we like have a good Tom, excuse for not I'm going I'm not like there. Tom Keene. I'm not long the triple leverage all cash fund, but uh, I'm also not day trading. <laughs> I'm also not a gamer, which doesn't help. Apparently, if you're True. a gamer, you've got uh, faster fingers. One of the stocks that has performed exceptionally well during this pandemic is Amazon.com. The stock is up 45% year-to-date. It sports a market cap of $1.34 trillion with a T. It company got, and the stock got a new supporter this week on Wall Street. Laura Martin, senior analyst at Needham & Company based in Los Angeles, initiated coverage this week with a buy rating, a $3,200 price target. The stock's currently trading at 2683 Laura, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us your thesis on Amazon right here. So I think the most important thing we're saying that's new on this name, Paul, is that this is really a services company and not a product company which is to say because consumers' relationship with, with Amazon is from a consumer-facing point, they think of it as an e-commerce company. But today, 43% of this company's revenue comes from services, and they have an 18% profit margin compared to e-commerce, which has a 3% profit margin. So when you look at contributions to actually operating profits, it really comes from services like Prime Video, like music, like advertising. It's huge here. We think they do $18 billion of advertising. So together, wow. we value what we call the media businesses at $500 billion, which is about the same size as AWS, which together means it's about eight services are about 80% of the value here at Amazon. 
Laura, this is something that's in Amazon's DNA. You talk about Amazon having a track record of expanding total addressable market decisions. So it's just constantly, constantly expanding the people that it reaches. And all of those decisions are driving higher profitability and lower shareholder risk. So it feels like this may never end. I think that's possible. I think one of the things, I cover Apple as well, and I think both Apple and Amazon, they're about the same size of company, $270 billion a year of revenue. I think they both generate $60 billion of free cash flow a year. Apple turns around and buys in shares, and so it drives higher earnings per share growth with that. I think what Amazon does, by contrast, is take a trillion of that and invest in what you just characterized as these TAM expanding you know, new verticals that are non-visible, and it turns them into AWS or advertising or groceries or delivery, last mile delivery innovations. And then it reports out much lower free cash flow and much lower margins because it runs into the income season. So I think it might never end because this is how Bezos is wired. They have grown in these ways that for the last 20 years under the CEO, Jeff Bezos. So, Laura, talk to us a little bit about the uh, cloud business. That's really been a, um, you know, a profit driver for Amazon for years and years. Investors were, I guess, used to or conditioned to little to no profitability coming out of the core e-commerce business. But once they really started building out the cloud business, it's been a real profit generator for them. How do you view the growth and the profitability of that business? You know, I, I think that it's important. They, they break out the cloud business separately financially. So there's been a lot of good financial analysis. What we would say of our value added in this messaging is that we think this is a playbook that you should look at Amazon and repeat. They're doing it now in advertising. And what happens is when Amazon gets big enough at something they're successful at, they break it out separately. So you can value it separately. So um, we think that they do about $18 billion of advertising today, which has a 70% profit margin. And that business is soon going to get big enough. We think it is uh, together, the services businesses are almost as large as AWS. So we think at some point in the next two years, they will break out these, what I would call their media businesses or their media revenue streams into a separate business and you will be able to value it. And it will be more profitable than AWS. But right now it's hidden in this massive you know, conglomerate. So I always call it, what's important about AWS is it is a playbook for how Amazon runs businesses and then uncovers its hidden value over time so that Wall Street can more easily value it. You know, you talk about Amazon also having media asset values of about $500 billion. What happens there? Where are ad dollars going, Laura? So there's advertising and there's subscription. That prime subscription product has a 40% profit margin. Let's remember that Netflix is valued at nine times revenue and it loses money. Prime, which is mostly for shipping, but 20% of prime subscribers stay there, there for the media, which is Twitch, which is really important, music and video. All of those assets are bundled in that prime subscription, and that makes churn lower. It makes the average revenue per user, the lifetime value, higher. Um, and then they have advertising as well. So all of those businesses have much higher margins than the average, even higher than cloud by a lot, a much higher margin than cloud. And, and that's, you know, three times as high a margin as the e-commerce business. So these media businesses, I think, not only are they growing faster, they're helping churn fall for the e-commerce part of the um, Amazon business, and they have much higher profitability and returns on capital. So, Laura, what does this mean for the, I'll call them traditional media companies that you and I grew up covering? There's been a lot of consolidation. Is that enough, or is there really not a bull case to be made for some of these traditional vertically integrated media companies? 
Um, so I think Amazon's trying to, it, it, Amazon's doing something different than our traditional media companies that you and I started in the world covering. And I, what I would say is they have a bigger, uh, they have a bigger work. They're thinking globally for one thing. Um, and, and their margin structure is different. They're very much data and technology driven. Um, as you and I have seen from the past, you know, data alone does not good content make. Um, so I don't necessarily think of Amazon as a core competitor. I think it is much more likely that if they decide to really go into the media business, they buy the Walt Disney Company or they buy Fox. They can buy these traditional media companies because their margin profile is globally scaled, much more profitable. But I got to tell you, Paul, I think this man, this, this company really thinks in much bigger total addressable markets. Like we think he's going after the logistics market next. This is $1.6 trillion total addressable market. Like media is too small for him. Right. <laughs> so well, other... I don't think he's going to look backwards. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, Paul. Sorry. No, no, go ahead, funny. No, no, that was good. Yeah. Uh, I guess we should ask you really about Apple on Monday as well, because it's the first virtual WWDC conference in, in ever. Uh, is there anything that you're anticipating that will blow us away? I think the most important thing we're waiting to hear from Apple is what's going on with the 5G phone. So, because I think the stock has been running on the hopes that we have a 5G phone this year. Um, it's going to be late. All of their products are going to be late because of the COVID pandemic shutting down factories. Um, and so we're waiting to hear what's the new 5G phone going to be. And I think, I think then our next step is after we know what their product mix is going to be and when it's coming out, when it's going to, they also usually announce when things are going to be hitting the market shelves available for purchase. Um, then we're going to all have to go do surveys about does any consumer care? Is anyone buying a new Apple phone this year? I mean, I think that's a separate question, but first we need the data on what is Apple delivering to the marketplace and when. All right, Laura, thank you. We will eagerly await that on Monday, but also just uh, very happy to chat with you about your initiation of coverage of Amazon, the company's uh, hidden value multiplier and so on. Looking for Amazon to hit $3,200 in the next 12 months and obviously has a buy rating on it. That's Laura Martin there, senior media analyst at Needham and Company. And of course, Paul, as soon as she said Disney, I I, I heard yeah. you perk up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's interesting. It's, uh, yeah, you have to just really think about the future of these uh, traditional media companies, including Disney. Exactly. Let's get back to our market coverage now. We have Dave Kudla joining us. And David Kudla, of course, is founder, CEO, and chief investment strategist of Mainstay Capital, about $2.7 billion in assets under management, and named by Barron as Barron's as one of the top financial advisors, one of the top 25 over the past six years. Dave, great to speak with you again. We've been asking participants here of the show to tell us why exactly stocks continue to reach new highs even if we see some volatility and even if today is quadruple witching so it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a a bit of an exception well we've been in in uh, good morning bonnie the mantra that i think all investors need to heed all professionals uh that some I think have forgotten and are remembering now is that uh, the mantra of don't fight the Fed. And we've seen uh, some professionals, some bears that have thrown in the towel recently and have come back to a bullish stance. Uh, but this has been our mantra on this rally all the way back up. And I think that it continues to push stocks higher. You can't, 
it's just very difficult to justify these levels and even a, and certainly a continued advance on fundamentals of uh, some of these companies, fundamentals of the market and the economic reality. Uh, but it's it's essentially Fed stimulus and central bank stimulus uh, that is continued continuing to put push asset prices higher and specifically stocks higher. So, David, you know it's kind of my thought here and what what I read and hear and talk to folks like you that a lot of this market movement, particularly the rally off the bottom, which were you know roughly forty percent off the bottom, has been dr- driven literally by a handful of stocks, the Fang Plus kind of names. How broad-based is this? And if to the extent it's not broad-based and the depth is not there, the breadth is not there, how concerning is that to you? It, it's not concerning at this point. We've seen, really, we've seen that kind of advance or that kind of narrow leadership for quite a while. We were seeing that in 2019 and early 2020 uh, before we had the bear market decline. And I think a lot of that is a function of, you know, that there was this a lot of concern about the FANG stocks, a lot of concern about big cap tech that, you know, and the, specifically the FANG stocks, either, you know, those stocks that are big cap tech or retail stocks that are being enabled by technology, that it was a house of cards that was uh, eminently going to fall or eventually going to crumble. And, you know, our, our uh, school of thought on that has been that, you know, it, Technology is changing the world. Technology is eating the world. And if you look at what happened, what's happened through the pandemic, uh, some of these, um, the cloud stocks, IT stocks, you know, those have been the enablers for uh, the different businesses that have done quite well through the pandemic. It's just uh, another, uh, another scenario where we've seen how technology has mattered. And so we think that uh, it's it's a secular growth story that remains and that these stocks are going to continue to trade at high multiples. They're going to continue to do well, and we're continue, we'll, we will continue to see that leadership. We saw a rotation back into value stocks here recently, and it was just another head fake. The, mm. the tech stocks, IT, cloud, all those came right back into leadership positions. And, you know, we, we have been uh, – uh, overweight growth stocks. We continue to be, we don't fall for those value stock head fakes. And except for, we've taken a barbell approach in our portfolios here more recently over the past couple of months, because the, we call it the lockdown rebound plays, but basically some of these cyclical areas, uh, whether it's the airlines, uh, travel, leisure, uh, energy, uh, construction, housing, you know, there's been some some good plays on those on the rebound, but we're staying with the secular growth story, specifically technology. Dave, how long does this narrative play out for, though? I mean, it seems like nothing can go wrong for these companies. I mean, Amazon put on $400 billion worth of market capitalization during the pandemic. Well, I, I, that's just it. I mean, we, we say that nothing can go wrong, and I think it's that they're just in a place where, you know, everything is right for them. Amazon, you know, Amazon has been a category killer for years and will continue to be, you know, coming back to what's happened during the the pandemic. Um, There was an ETF that we invested in called Clicks that was, uh, it was just a, it was a slam dunk. It is an ETF, a long, short ETF that is, it was long, uh, e-commerce and short brick and mortar. Uh, the government was closing down brick and mortar stores. Even people that 
weren't accustomed to shopping online were being compelled or almost forced to do so. So that was a boost to Amazon and other online retailers. But uh, and some of those habits have changed forever. Um, and, and so people are continuing to move more and more to shopping online. Uh, that uh, trend will continue. So the Amazons of the world, and specifically Amazon, will continue to do well. So, David, if I believe that the economy is going to slowly re- rebound in the back half of this year, then have a much stronger 2021, I want to go long some cyclicals. Do I want to go long some transportation, something in the rails, the truckers, the you know the cargo ships that are going to be shipping all that cargo around the globe? Is that a play if I believe in a stronger 2021? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I think you need to be careful. You know, you need to look at the charts. Uh, you know, when we look at uh, the airlines, for instance, you know, there is an opportunity because they, they took such a plunge down as much as 62% on the downside. You know, when they come back to their pre-COVID levels, um, you know, we look at the chart of the airlines and it's it's like an EKG with noise in it. And, you know, that's an industry that operates on razor thin margins with an airline going out of business every or filing for bankruptcy every year or two. We look at construction and housing. That was on a nice upward slope that got interrupted. It's had a nice rally back. Uh, All those other cyclicals you're talking about, though, um, some of them have a long runway left in this in this rebound, and I think that you you know investors need to look at those areas to include in portfolios as we move through this recovery in the economy, not just here but globally. David Kudlow, thank you so much for joining us. David's the CEO and Chief Investment Strategist at Mainstay Capital Management. About $2.7 billion under management. We always love speaking to David. Very thoughtful analysis of the market. And Vania, you know, I love how he talked about don't fight the Fed. That was literally the first lesson I learned on Wall Street when I was on the Payne Weber block trading desk back in the mid to late 80s. Oh, uh, <laughs> managing director came up to me and said, why are you selling stocks here? I said, well, you know, and I said, he said, the rates are going down, kid. Buy stocks. You know, so Stop. that's one that has stuck with me. In, uh, and Paul, do you have a photograph of that time? <laughs> no, I do not, thankfully. I was going to make uh, you tweet it out. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. But uh, so, but it's inter- interesting. I think imagine. David's right spot on here. We've had central banks around the world, uh, and, you know, led by the U.S. Federal Reserve, pumping liquidity into the marketplace. And some uh, someone we had on the show had coined a great phrase, which I love, which is backstopping uh, the mm. markets here, backstopping risk assets here. And that's kind of what it feels like. You get a little bit of a pullback in the market, uh, but investors still have confidence to come back in uh, and buy that dip despite some of the economic conditions we are facing. It is Juneteenth. It is perhaps also the first time that nationally this is being recognized and companies are actually recognizing Juneteenth. Some of them offering employees who so wish to take a day off Morgan Stanley, Target and Uber among them. But whether the moves will be scrutinized as enough or whether companies will also be forced to devote resources, actually make concrete measurable changes in areas such as hiring, vendor diversity, that's still up for grabs. Let's bring in Bloomberg finance reporter Lana Nguyen has been looking at what companies have been doing and whether it's going to be enough to satisfy public impressions right now. Lanan, thanks for joining. First, give us an idea of just how widespread the moves have been, particularly the the Juneteenth recognition. Thanks, Bonnie. It's nice to speak to you. Uh, So I think the widespread factor of this is very interesting because it's more about the um, major companies that have done it. So from 
Nike to Target, we're seeing some very um, large household names give employees a day off in recognition of Juneteenth. So I think there's an element of corporate leadership, on top of which you have banks like J.P. Morgan, which is closing branches early, and other banks, Bank of America and Citigroup, which um, basically told staff that they could take a day, a personal day, um, to, to commemorate Juneteenth. So we are seeing a lot of really, really uh, big companies try to mark the moment in some way. And so that's uh, just having a ripple effect across corporate America. New York City to make Juneteenth city school holiday next year. That's according to Mayor uh, de Blasio. So just another example. And Lanon, I have to admit, I'm a, I always consider myself a fairly well-read student of American history, but I have to admit I had never heard the term Juneteenth or its significance until a couple of days ago. What's the phenomenon behind this? Is this just a, uh, a recognition of the racial inequality in this country and, and ways to kind of, uh, you know, kind of call it to attention? Yes, Paul, and I think that you're not alone in in being uh, new to this. I think um, it's lesser known outside of the Black community, um, and it has suddenly kind of jumped onto the agenda of many people, including ourselves as business reporters. Um, And so the movement is similar to Martin Luther King Day to commemorate the end of slavery um, and to, you know, recognize and and fight against, um, you know, racial inequality. Um, One of the sources I spoke to for the story said that she and her family and her network um, use the day as a day of service and reflection to be with their families or to participate in community service events. And so, um, you know, there, there is a push here by the corporate sector to acknowledge that people in the black community, um, you know, take this seriously, and also people outside of that community as well. And so, um, you know, the the marketing consultant I spoke to said last year, nobody did anything for Juneteenth. And now suddenly this wave of companies is doing um, events and and, uh, commemorating in some way. Yeah, I was on air when Nike announced that it was going to take Juneteenth as a vacation date for employees who wanted to observe it. And I actually thought in some ways it was... I don't want to say a joke because it's an important thing and it's it's nice that a company would recognize that, but it also does feel very much like lip service, Lanan. I mean, when are we going to see actual, you know, corporate mandates, devoting resources to making measurable changes, doing things like fixing their hiring practices, making sure that there's vendor diversity? Sephora recently was one of those vendors that uh, signed up to what's been called the 15% pledge. The founder of Brother Valley is talking about the 15% pledge so that at least 15% of products in stores are from black-owned businesses. We need more of this, no? 100%, Vani, that is a very important question because a lot of the sources I spoke to said this is extremely important that people are not just going to be sort of pleased with a an announcement for one day or an observance for one day. This is supposed to be part of a lasting change. And people in the community are looking at um, at these companies to see, first of all, what is your record in the past? What are you doing to um, you know, fix any previous problems? And then what are you doing going forward to hire black people, elevate them in management, and um, you know, in, in, enforce policies that are going to help to rectify racial inequality. Um, uh, another person that we spoke to in a brand uh, consult- or brand strategy firm said, if it's just this day and the company doesn't do anything else more broadly, it's going to ring hollow and uh, consumers and, and 
other business partners are going to see that. So um, everyone is looking to see that the Juneteenth actions are backed up with broader measures in order to correct racial inequality. Yeah, interesting. I mean, you know, employees, Lennon, are certainly like the, reflecting the broader uh, populace, you know, more sensitive, arguably, just in the last couple of weeks, months to racial inequality. Uh, is this a reflection companies trying to do really the right thing? Or again, as Vani suggested, maybe it's just a little bit of lip service. I think the jury is out, Paul. I think there are some companies that are really trying to listen and do the right thing and others that just want to you know, make sure that they're covering themselves and having the optics of uh, you know, commemorating the day. So the marketing firm that we spoke to said that employees in companies that they surveyed um, really do support anti-racism protests. 62% of them support their protests. And yep. 55% say that their employer should respond directly to racial issues. So there's a conversation that's taking place in workplaces right now that has that is much more open about race than it ever has been before. Hey, Lenan, thank you so much for joining us and sharing uh, this uh, uh, reporting that you had. Lenan Nguyen, a Bloomberg finance reporter, uh, talking about Juneteenth. And again, uh, just coming across the Bloomberg terminal headline, uh, New York City uh, to make Juneteenth a city and school holiday next year. And that's according to Mayor uh, Bill de Blasio. So again, following along what we've seen uh, a lot in corporate America uh, as we tend to deal with this racial inequality. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.